0: We aren't doing the Bergman Bowl expansion to drive increased visitation. We're actually looking at it as how do we create a better experience for the guests that are here and spread them out. And so this is a pocket of terrain that was underutilized in the past because it was hiked to or shuttle cat serviced. And so now having a chairlift there, we'll be able to spread the guests that are already at the resort out across this bowl and create a better experience for everybody
1: storm. I'm your host, Stuart Winchester. It's September, which means we are probably sitting just a few weeks away from ski season at a number of US ski areas, including the one I'm featuring today. We'll get right there, but first, please do me a favor, hop over to stormskiing.com and subscribe to the Storm Skiing Newsletter. The podcast is fun. I love delivering these to you, but the podcast is only a small part of the storm. There is an article on stormskiing.com that accompanies this and every podcast that provides a ton of additional context on our conversation, including maps, charts, historical tidbits, and analysis of what makes this place special. That article will drop into your inbox in the form of a newsletter which also includes a minimum of 100 articles every single year exploring the world of lift serve skiing in North America. You can also follow The Storm on Twitter, Instagram, or threads at Stormski Journal. Episode 144, Chris Sorensen, Vice President and General Manager of Keystone, Colorado. Keystone is better than you think it is. For someone, just looking at the stats, who may not be so familiar with Colorado skiing, this might seem like a surprising statement. After all, this is a ski area with a 3,000-foot vertical drop and more than 3,000 acres of terrain. But the truth is that Keystone is in a very tough neighborhood, and it's always fighting for attention, both against its sister resorts of Breckenridge, Vail Mountain, and Beaver Creek but also against competitors like Arapaho Basin, Copper Mountain, and Winter Park. The place has a reputation as a family mountain, and a gentle one, but not much else. The fact that it's one of the least snowy major resorts in Colorado, with just 235 average annual inches compared to its Summit County neighbors 300 plus, doesn't help its rep. So here's a fact that might surprise you. Keystone is the fourth largest ski area in Colorado. It is bigger than Breck, bigger than Copper, bigger than Winter Park, bigger than Telluride. In fact, until Steamboat officially opens its Mahogany Ridge expansion this December, Keystone is still the third largest ski area in America's busiest ski state, behind only Snowmass and Vail Mountain. There are a couple other things that set Keystone apart. First, Keystone has the largest night skiing operation in Colorado, and one of the largest in the country. Second, Keystone is one of the first ski areas in America to open each autumn. The mountain has started spinning the lifts in October in three of the past four seasons, with the only exception being the oddball 2020-21 ski season, when most early operators waited until they had more terrain online to get the lifts spinning due to COVID capacity issues. Third, it's a better ski area than you probably think it is. While the front side is indeed an intermediate's paradise, North Peak and Outback deliver some awesome glades and some terrific fall line skiing. I'm not saying it has the steep Savay Basin right down the road, but Keystone does have some really interesting, really fun terrain that will keep just about any level of skier occupied. The place is also run by a really terrific leader, one who started his ski life both as a snowboarder and then as an employee at this Summit County Mainstay and has worked his way up to run the place. We had a really great chat about all of this and I'm fired up to bring it to you. Let's go. My guest today has been vice president and general manager of Keystone, Colorado since 2021. With 3,149 acres of terrain on a 3,128 foot vertical drop, Keystone is one of the largest ski areas in Colorado. Its annual October opening date makes Keystone one of the first ski areas to open in North America each season. He has worked at Vail Resorts since 2004, spending time at Breckenridge, Brighton, Michigan, and Afton Alps, Minnesota, after starting as a lift operator and ticket scanner at Keystone. Chris Sorensen is my guest. Chris, welcome to the storm. So much happening at Keystone this season. I cannot wait to get into all of it with you today. How is everything in Colorado on this Monday morning? Yeah, good morning, Stuart. Uh, Things are great. We woke up this morning to a a lovely dusting
0: on uh, the top peaks above 13,000 feet. So it's starting to feel like winter, um, which is all I think about all year long. And so, yeah, today today I'm really excited because there's a little bit of a A fall, chill in the air, a little bit of dusting on the top of the mountain, and and winter
1: can't come soon enough. I love it. I mean, we're recording this on September 11th, which means, historically speaking, you could have the lift spinning within four or five weeks here. I mean, how optimistic are you for an early opening this year, or is it just too soon to tell? I would love to
0: say I'm really optimistic for a really early opening, but it's still too soon to tell.
1: Talk about that process a little bit, Chris. I mean, how do you get your teams ready in, you know, this high alpine environment where you can't necessarily, I mean, we have some pretty good long-term forecasting these days, but you never really know. So, so talk a little bit about the process of just staging all your teams and getting them ready for that moment when you may have to get everything going and turn and get the mountain rolling.
0: Yeah. So we, we bring in our snowmakers we have a, a large number that return each year. And so that group comes in middle of September and starts working for us waiting. And we're looking at the long-term forecasts we're looking at, um, you know, the atmospheric forecasts and really trying to decide when the best time to start making snow uh, is. And for us, it's it's got to be like sustained, you know, mm-hmm. two or three days of cold temp, like really cold temp uh, is great. But at the end of those three days, if it's going to be back in the 70s and not see a window for another five days, it it would be almost a, a wasted effort for us. And so, we work really hard at looking at the forecasts. Uh, it's something I look at every morning when I come to work. Uh, to see what that looks like. But we also did a good job of investing in our snowmaking. And so mm-hmm. in 2019, we did a large investment in upgrading our snowmaking system to make it fully automated. So that automation, each one of our snow guns on our school marm trail actually has its very own weather station. Wow. And so it's pulling the dew point, it's pulling the temperature, and it's actually deciding on how much water to put in the snow gun, how much um, air to push through it. Uh, and so it's it's really making the most efficient snow for us. And so our our team just sits behind a computer screen. It almost looks like a a 911 dispatch with a bunch of TV screens and they can see every gun on the mountain, the temperature at every single gun that we have the weather station on.
1: And they're just a click away from making sure everything's going. I mean, that that is an awesome operation. To what extent at this point in Keystone's history, do you have that opening plan locked in? It's gonna be these trails on this peak. And to what extent do you play with that a little bit and play with altitude and the best places to make snow and and maybe change that plan a little bit year to year to see really where is the very best place on the mountain to open early?
0: Yeah, great, great question. And we, you know, we have our opening footprint, which is 55 acres. Um, it is our School Marm Trail down into Montezuma. And then we we do a hike to park. Last year, we did a hike to park off the top of School Marm uh, the year before that. We had a delay in getting our park. And so we adjust year to year based on the needs for the the actual trail and the snowmaking. Uh, and then also kind of what our guests are doing. But it's always going to be the 55 acres. We're looking to the future. We would love to upgrade our snowmaking down to the base area with the high efficiency, you know, automated guns. And so that's kind of phase two of the snowmaking project we did back in 2021, uh, up on the top of School Marm. And so... When that happens, then yeah, we'll we'll hopefully have top to bottom skiing day one right out of the gate, which would be pretty amazing for us. We're able to get top to bottom usually within five days of opening, but it depends on what the weather looks like at the bottom of the mountain versus the top of the mountain temperature wise. So I would say for our opening package, it's pretty locked in and, and
1: set to what we're going to do. So this, as I mentioned in the intro, has been a longstanding Keystone tradition Talk a little bit, Chris, about the importance of that tradition of being one of the first and sometimes the very first ski area in North America to open each season.
0: Yeah, great. We, we're we proud, right? We're really proud to be able to kick off the ski season for North America. And so the team here takes a ton of pride in it. And, and they work really hard to ensure that we're putting the best product down tree to tree snow on that 55 acres. And so sometimes we'll we'll wait a few more days just to make sure that we have the depth of snow and we're tree to tree um, on that opening trail so that when our guests come out, they have the best experience. We pride ourselves on, on the experience we're able to deliver for our guests. And so
1: having that amount of coverage uh, is important to us. What makes Keystone the ideal spot? What is it about the mountain geographically or atmospherically that makes it such an ideal spot for that early season opening as compared to maybe some of avails other mountains that are in the region. Our elevation obviously helps us, right?
0: And so we get the colder temps here at Keystone compared to some of our sister resorts down I-70 over in Eagle County uh, earlier in the, in the fall. And so that allows us to be able to make snow earlier than they are and, you know, drive towards that sometimes, you know, mid-October opening of the resort. And so yeah, I think compare that to proximity of Denver, really close for people being able to, to drive up from Denver to come ski here. And it's it's a great value, obviously, for our pass holders that a lot of them are on the front range and can hop on I-70, come up here and um, get to experience winter, sometimes second week of October, which is pretty
1: cool. So you push it really hard on the front end. On the back end, Keystone tends to close early April, first week, usually, I believe Whereas up at A Basin, just up the road from you, they often go into June and Breckenridge goes at least usually to Memorial Day and sometimes into June. Why is it the Keystone shuts down early? Is it a volume thing or, or is there some other reason that you just say, okay, we've made it far enough. Let's close it down even, if, even when you have plenty of snow.
0: Yeah, it's a, it's a couple of factors there. And so once we hit April, most of our local visitation, so our, our front range folks, They're ready to pull out their bikes. They're ready Mm -hmm. to be outside on their bikes. And so they're not really thinking about skiing and riding anymore. And then Breck, you know, drives to have um, skiing, you know, all the way to Memorial Day, uh, if they're able to with conditions. And so doesn't make sense for us to continue to stay open when Breck is going to go till uh, Memorial Day. And so with us opening as early as we possibly can in October, usually that first weekend, sometimes the second weekend of April, depending on where the holiday falls, works out really well for us to close the mountain down.
1: All right. Good long season either way. And, and, all those Keystone passes just convert to Breck passes anyway. So folks don't have to to, go too far for their turns. All right, Chris, let's get right into this expansion here. One of three big expansions going on in Colorado this offseason. The other two are at Aspen Mountain and Steamboat. But tell us about Bergman Bowl. Where is it on the mountain? How many trails are we getting? How big is the area overall? Just lay all this out for us.
0: Yeah, so Bergman Bowl is um, one of our five bowls situated in between Independence and Erickson and kind of in between Durkham mountain, which is our front side mountain and North peak. Mm -hmm. Uh, It is a total of the expansion is a total of 550 uh, acres lift serviced. And that'll give you access in Bergman bowl as well as Erickson bowl. And then it's 16 new trails that uh, we're going in and either glading or cutting trees to actually clear cut a trail for all in this Bergman space. And so this, this terrain has been open in the past. It's just been hiked to, or uh, in the past, we've actually offered a uh, a shuttle cat or even a guided cat tour for a day in this terrain. And so guess we're still able to access it. It's, it's for me, some of the, the best terrain on the mountain. The snow really holds in Bergman Bowl really well. Yeah. And so now we're throwing in a uh, high-speed six-person lift so that we can open up this terrain to everybody and not just the folks that are looking to get um, a hike in.
1: So tell us about that lift, Chris. What's the vertical rise on that lift and how's that construction coming along? Again, we're recording this on September 11th.
0: Construction's going really well. Bottom terminal's been complete. Concrete's been pour- poured for the top terminal. All the tower foundations are ready. So we're we're on track uh, with the lift progress. It's a thousand feet vertical rise from top to bottom, and it's going to be just around a five-minute ride time for us. And so this lift, you know, will be one of the highest six-person chairlifts in the world um, taking up there to the top, which is 12,282 feet.
1: Wow. So that's a lot of extra capacity, Chris, to add another sixer onto Keystone, which is a mountain that already has really good lift system and can move a lot of people. When you decide to do an expansion like this at a ski area like Keystone is, and I'm playing here off of Breckenridge recently updated their master plan and their whole thing was better, not bigger. right? So so they had some extra lift capacity going in, but the goal was not necessarily to draw more people in. It was, okay, how do we give the people who are here a better experience? Is the philosophy the same at Keystone? Is the, is the purpose of Bergman to bring more people to Keystone, or is it to give the people who are at Keystone a little bit more space, a little bit more options, a little bit more room to spread out, or is it some combination of those things?
0: Yeah, so the way we think about it is, how do we create a better guest experience at the resort? And so we aren't doing the Bergman Bowl expansion to drive increased visitation. We're actually looking at it as how do we create a better experience for the guests that are here and spread them out? And so this is a pocket of terrain that was underutilized in the past um, because it was hiked to or um, shuttle cat serviced. And so now having a chairlift there, we'll be able to spread the guests that are already at the resort out across this bowl and create a better experience for everybody.
1: This is interesting that you're right. This terrain has been on the map for years and there's always this interesting dynamic at play where anytime that a resort puts a lift into terrain that had been hiked to, there tends to be a small, but very vocal opposition group that says, well, we just wanna maintain that experience, which I get. But the truth is that the vast majority of skiers are gonna be riding a lift Talk about that dynamic a little bit, Chris, as you've gone through this process of scoping out and announcing and and putting this lift up into Bergman. How vocal has that opposition been locally to the folks who say, Hey, you know, I've really I've been skiing this for 30 years, and now you're ruining it. And how have you dealt with that dynamic?
0: Yeah, um, I, I think sometimes change is tough for folks. And you know, Bergman offers something really unique to our guests. It's not often that you find this approachable low angle terrain that's above treeline. And that is what Bergman offers. And so because of that, like it really made sense to put a lift into Bergman Bowl and open that terrain up for everybody and not just the folks that, you know, enjoy hiking it. And so we still will have plenty of hike to terrain across our mountain. The windows, Independence Bowl, North and South Bowl will all remain hike to terrain. And some of those areas have steeper terrain than Bergman. And so they're, they're actually more of a backcountry feel, as opposed to, you know, the terrain that you're able to access in the Bergman uh, bowl expansion.
1: So let's talk about that terrain a little bit here, Chris, as you said, a lot of blue terrain, intermediate marked on the map, also some glades in there. Talk a little bit about that dynamic of the glades. Did you have to do any glade work in there or are those just naturally skiable? Or are those also about the same pitch as the trails? Yeah, so we did do some glading in some of the areas. We also, again, did some clear
0: cutting to, to actually create some of the trails that we were looking to create um, as you get to closer, you know, into tree line and closer to the chairlift. We went in and really looked at what's the best for the terrain here, for mm-hmm. the skier, and then for the forest. And so as we were going and actually looking at where we were going to cut runs and where we were going to do glading, our team worked side by side with the Forest Service to ensure that we were doing um, the right thing with the forest. And so, you know, we, we have a, a program here with healthy forest. And so a lot of the trees that we went in and removed for the glading were beetle kill. They were dead trees. They were either dead fall on the ground. And so we were clearing some of that. And then, you know, in the glading areas, we, we cut obviously some of the low branches off the trees, but left, you know, the trees there so that they could still continue to grow, uh, so that we still, created a great experience, and were good stewards to the forest that we so happily get to operate on.
1: For skiers who are familiar with Keystone, who maybe haven't hiked up to those glades before, is there another area of the mountain you can compare them to? You know, if you get over into North Peak, the glades are a little thicker, a little gnarlier, like Cass South. But if you go over to Outback and you're out in Pika Glades or or Timberwolf, those are a little more spaced apart because it's a little higher elevation. Is, is there anything else on the mountain you can compare it to? I would say it's
0: tough to compare some of the glading work that we did on the mountain because mm. we do have other gladed spots across the resort. But I think the terrain that's in Bergman really creates uh, a completely different experience. A lot of the glading work that we did really took place in Erickson as well as uh, Univa, which is our black trail. Kind of, mm. if you're looking at the trail map, left side of the bowl is where we did most of the glading work. And it's it's really one, how it's going to ski and ride, and then two, over in Ericsson, it's really the egress out of Ericsson as you're getting down back towards uh, our normal uh, anticipation flats area.
1: So talk about that terrain off of Ericsson, because this is also, even though this is the Bergman Bowl expansion, you can also directly access, as you mentioned, a bunch of Black Diamonds off of Ericsson. So tell us about that terrain, and it actually, you can't lap Bergman from that terrain. So, so talk about the terrain itself. And then the experience of skiing out and where you're going to end up.
0: Yeah. So Ericsson, you know, the glading that took place into there, obviously important part of the project for us. I would say Ericsson is, is really targeted our advanced skiers and riders. It obviously boasts some of the steepest high alpine terrain that we have in that experience will really be what our backcountry folks are looking for. And so you'll be able to ride the Bergman chairlift up, kind of traverse uh, off the chairlifts over to the Ericsson gate, and then be able to drop into Ericsson. Once you come out of Erickson, it's going to put you down either at the bottom of uh, Outback Express or the bottom of Wayback. And so to get back into Bergman, you'll have to take the Wayback lift up and then come down North Peak uh, onto Miners Trail, which will then put you into the bottom of Bergman so you can do that lap again. And so I, I would I would expect that we will see quite a few of our skiers and riders that do like that advanced terrain that were probably our hikers in the past in Bergman mm-hmm. really lapping Erickson. Uh, as well as probably some of our patrollers when I'm looking for them. They'll probably be back there doing laps on uh, Ericsson since that's some of the best terrain.
1: <laughs> this wasn't on the master plan, but I'm curious as this has come together, did you consider maybe a surface lift or a fixed grip lift up maybe along anticipation? So at the bottom of Erickson, where you have the end of the pitch to take people back to the top of North Peak, is that something that's ever been discussed or is it just too expensive and folks just have to ski back down to way back and, and make their way back that way. Yeah, it wasn't something
0: that we thought about with the the Bergman expansion plan. You know, it was really creating this pod for our guests to lap, but not really a lift coming off of anticipation back up to the top of North Peak so that you can have quick access to Ericsson. You know, not to say that it may not make our MDP in the future, but and I think as we think about our guest experience, Bergman's a game changer for us. And so it'll be interesting to just see how our guests utilize that terrain this year mm-hmm. and where they choose to dine for lunch or take, you know, warm up breaks and where they go. Uh, is, is it taking two or three laps in Bergman and then heading over to Outback and doing some laps in Outback or hiking North and South Pole? Or is it taking laps in Bergman and then really staying on North Peak or taking laps in Bergman and then going back to the front side? I think we'll learn a ton about how our guests are utilizing the mountain um, this winter with Bergman. And I think that will then help us formulate what our kind of next MDP plan looks like here Mm -hmm. at Keystone.
1: It's, It's such an interesting bit of data to dig into there, Chris, because you have all this information today that you didn't have probably even 10 years ago where you're scanning skiers at every lift for the Epic Mix app. And, and to help monitor lift times and everything else. How important is that data? How much is Vail Resorts and Keystone using that data these days to really determine, because before you could monitor things and and you could try to figure out what skier traffic was like, but everyone I talked to just says that RFID, once they put it in, they get so much more data about how much season pass holders are skiing and where they're skiing at. So just talk about the dynamics of that data a little bit and really how it informs your long-term planning around the mountain. Yeah, so... We collect a lot of data.
0: And we have an analytics team that really analyzes that data and helps us, you know, as we think about what kind of capital projects we may want to do in the future, or at at the resort level, how we anticipate our guest behavior. And so, you know, where we need to put employees, where we may need to expand a restaurant. And we we use the data that we're collecting from the passes and through our epic mixed cantries to really help formulate some of the plans. And so You know, I think as we think about Bergman, we don't know what the guest behavior will be after they take some runs in Bergman. We're not really sure where they will go um, or if they'll just spend their whole day in Bergman. Mm -hmm. And so it'll be really exciting to get to see some of that data and where they utilize the rest of the mountain so that we can think about where we want to potentially put more capital dollars uh, in the future for the resort.
1: Yeah, Sixer is a really beefy lift for this terrain, high altitude terrain. Talk about the process of choosing to put a six pack in there over maybe say a high speed quad. And was that data involved in that decision? Uh, the, the data was not involved in that decision.
0: Uh, as we looked at this terrain, we get some wind in this area. And so when we went and really looked at what kind of lift we should put in there, the weight of a sixer actually works better mm. uh, with the wind that comes up the uh, lift line and over that ridge. And so a a quad, we felt like we could experience more wind holds in Mm -hmm. the terrain. And so moving towards a six person will obviously create a better guest experience because I'm betting, you know, that this is going to be a very popular lift and popular Mm -hmm. terrain for us this winter and for future years. And so, you know, having the six person will benefit the guests. And so we won't have lines at the bottom because we'll be able to move people up into that terrain quicker
1: and more efficient. We've seen Boyne Resorts in particular when dealing with wind challenges really go to these D-line bubble lifts. Vale has shied away from bubble lifts for the past several years. Did you consider bubbles for the Bergman Express? And if so, ultimately, why did you decide that that wouldn't be necessary? And I, sometimes the bubbles just add weight to the chair, right? So it can help with that wind sway. But talk about that process of deciding not to use bubbles here.
0: Yeah, bubbles were not considered when we were looking at this terrain. You know, Keystone doesn't have any bubbles anywhere at the resort. So it wasn't something that we were looking at or considering. We felt like, you know, we'd already done the Montezuma chair as a six pack. We recently did the, the Peru lift as a six pack. Neither of those are bubbles. Those work fantastic for us. Um, we don't see any wind closures on either of those lifts. And so for us, it just made sense to go with what we're used to and, and what's been working really well for us. And so the decision was made to use a six pack chair lift there in Bergman.
1: So as far as accessing this terrain, it was funny. I was watching the videos that you made around making the new trail map with Rad Smith, and we'll discuss those in a moment. But James Nihus, who designed his first Keystone trail map about 30 years ago, talked about the challenges of, in particular, designing a trail map for Keystone because of all the different faces and all the different peaks. And this one just adds even more complexity, and it can be a little bit misleading for skiers. As to how you could actually get there and it looks to me like what you do is either take the outpost gondola across from Durkham, or ski down and and take santiago up and then ski down off the top of bergman either way it looks like north peak is the access point for bergman is that accurate is there another way to get there
0: that is accurate the only way you'll be able to access bergman is off of north peak uh and so a couple options you know part of the, the bergman expansion you know, we have the 10 mile trail, that is a green trail. And so one of the very few high Alpine green trails in the country. Uh, and so it was important for us that, that the access to get to Bergman also allowed our green folks. And so those beginner folks that are looking to get into Bergman, they're going to hop on the outpost gondola, and they're going to ride the outpost gondola over to North Peak, they're going to get out. And then they're going to jump on Miners, which is basically our summer road down to the bottom of Bergman. Then anyone else that's, uh, you know, a blue um, or or higher level skier, they're going to go down Mozart. Um, Well, they're going to go down Mozart. uh, They could choose to go down Diamondback or Mineshaft, depending on how they want to get down to the bottom of Santiago. Uh, And then they're going to ride Santiago up and then access it the same way via Miners. But those are the only real way that you're going to be able to access Bergman. You can't get there from the top of Durkham going into the windows and you can't get there really if you go up out back and go into to North Bowl and kind of traverse, you won't be able to get into Bergman.
1: So I, I mean, the windows that you just mentioned, that is an awesome piece of terrain and it's the only double black, I believe, terrain that you have on the trail map. It looks like you can ski down from Bergman into the windows, but there's also kind of a yellow dotted line separating them. Again, this is not an easy mountain to portray on the trail map. Will you, in fact, be able to access the windows from Bergman? You will not. Um, Mm. I know it looks like it on the map. Uh, Again, very, very hard to articulate
0: the different terrain on the the map, but the windows is obviously expert tree skiing terrain for us. Uh, You get to go over it when you ride the outpost gondola, but there's no way for you to get into the windows from Bergman. There's actually a a ravine that's in there. Uh, And so that's kind of what some of that yellow line delineates on the trail map is that there's a bit of a stream that runs through there. And so it would split you from being able to get from Bergman into the windows. And you won't be able to hike up from Unevo. You could hike up from Uneva. It's going to be, it's going to be a hike. It's our peak to peak trail. And so you're going to have to hike quite a ways to get actually up to where you can drop in because where Uneva is, it's actually a a downhill slope. Uneva is almost the belly of kind of the windows hike before it goes back up to the top of Bergman. And so, yeah, someone could, if they wanted to get some exercise and come all the way around, you'd do better for yourself if you actually took that from the Durkham side and and took the (laughs) peak to peak trail, as opposed to trying to go from the top of Bergman.
1: Duly noted. So as you mentioned, Chris, this area has been on the trail map for years and there were a handful of trails that were marked at least on the trail map Their skiers will see, and I'll include the draft of this map in the article that accompanies this podcast on StormSkiing.com, but there's a whole bunch more trails and they have different names. So talk about that process. Why did you decide, okay, time for new names, and then talk about the process of actually choosing those uh, and and deciding where to put them. Because sometimes it's not so obvious with a bowl, right, where you should have trails and where you shouldn't. So just take us through that.
0: Yeah, so... Although this area has obviously been on the trail map previously, you know, we really wanted to reinvent the experience as we put a chairlift in there. And so because this was, you know, very underutilized, limited, small number of people being able to access this, the lift will completely change that for us. And so we decided we were going to change the names for all the runs that were back in Bergman. And that's a really cool experience to be able to be part of the resort and the team that gets to pick new names for new trail runs uh and so yeah we did a brainstorming session got together kind of kicked around some ideas and said you know let's let's think about how we want to um really showcase this terrain was able to narrow it down to two ideas for the bergman expansion and then you know really as i thought about it and and went up there and actually spent some time where the lift is going to unload it was pretty clear to me that the views from up there unbelievable and so I thought it was important to be able to name these trails off of the surrounding iconic peaks that you can see as Mm -hmm. you get off the chairlift. And so really worked on as you're skiing down that specific run from the very top, if you looked up and looked straight across the valley, Mm -hmm. that would be the peak that you would be staring at. Wow. Um, And so 10 mile, right? The 10 mile trail that's green as you're coming down that, that actually looks out at the 10 mile range and our sister resort, um, Breckenridge. Mm -hmm. Whereas, you know, if you come down Buffalo, as you Mm -hmm. turn into Buffalo, you look up and, and Buffalo mountain across the lake is also right there in your face. And so really trying to share, you know, a little bit of like the iconic peaks around the area with our guests as they you know, we're skiing this terrain and look up and go, oh, that's Buffalo. Oh, that's Red. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's mm-hmm. tories which is, I think, unique for us. And in a way, very, very special.
1: Yeah, that's super clever. I really like that. Is it the same in Ericsson with Silverheads and Nuchu and Tetrafoot Glades?
0: It is not completely the same in Ericsson. You obviously can see them, but not as you're dropping into that trail looking up, but are also iconic peaks that you can see from the top of our mountain.
1: So it's all laid out in the new trail map, which I have a draft of that your folks have emphasized is not final yet, but you've been working on this with Rad Smith, who is often been described as the baton has been handed off from the legendary James Nehus, who stepped back from making trail maps. Talk about the process of making this new map with Rad. What a cool undertaking. And I think you've you've hopefully got to see
0: some of the videos that we've Mm -hmm. released, but really special to have him hand paint each one of the trees and really work through what that layout is going to look like for the new trail map, huge undertaking. And so it's been great working with Rad. Uh, He's done a fantastic job for us as he's, um, you know, followed in James's footsteps of taking over a really cool art, uh, I would say. And so, yeah, it was great to work with him. He did a, a fantastic job with us as he was working through creating it going back and forth in reiterations and like where we needed to you know remove trees or you know add trees it showcased right all the diverse terrain that that Keystone is able to offer and so yeah you'll see on the new trail map there's a bit of a shift in just the view viewpoint vantage point as we really try to showcase Bergman
1: the videos are excellent they're really well done and I'll include those in the article that accompanies the podcast. I, I was surprised to see his process and that he still hand paints the maps. I'm not sure how much of an opinion Bell Resorts or Keystone has on this, but as you look at all the technology available today and the fact that a lot of these things can be and are made digitally, what's the advantage still of hand painting a map and, and having this that perspective on it? Yeah, I would say that I don't have an opinion. I think it's really
0: exciting to see Rad's passion. And Mm -hmm. the work that he does with hand painting each uh, tree, each chairlift, and so for me, I think it's I think it's really cool. And there's a piece that's special about the artwork and the time that he puts into each one of these trail maps.
1: So as you mentioned, Rad took the original map that James Nehus had made, and and to be clear, James didn't just paint this map 30 years ago and walk away. Keystone has changed a lot, and he continued to revise it. Talk about that process of handing that off to rad and to what extent did you want to keep the integrity of that nihu style and to what extent did you want rad to just take it and make it his own
0: yeah i think for us it was important that rad tie into the history that that james had really started with keystone when he did a map 30 years ago for us so the handoff was done really well. And again, our relationship with Rad has been fantastic. And, you know, the back and forth on reiterations and the changes. And like you said, this isn't a, a one and done. You know, we we are constantly working on trail maps each year, right? We're, we're making adjustments or changes or thinking about a new chairlift or a new trail or a new building. And so there's a, a number of times that we'll do a new trail map. And so I think the relationship we have with Rad and the work that he's done is, is really cool. And you know, I was just last night looking at some of James's old trail maps that he's done for us and for other resorts uh, that he's got out there, which is it's really cool to see the skill and the craft of making these hand-drawn, hand-painted trail maps.
1: Yeah, they're really beautiful pieces of art, particularly with a huge resort like Keystone, where you can really spread it out and really see the scale of the place. Bell Resorts has been moving away from paper trail maps and They are available still, places in the resort. And I imagine with this upgrade, a lot of people are going to want one either to help them get around as a souvenir, probably both. To what extent are paper trail maps still available at Keystone and where can folks get those? Because they're not sitting in giant stacks by the ticket window anymore.
0: Yeah, part of our commitment to zero, right, is zero waste to landfill. Uh, And so we've made a commitment to really reduce the number of trail maps that we purchase to give out to guests. We have also created an app. Our Epic Mix app has a trail map attached to it, can pinpoint where you're at on the mountain, can give you actual lift wait times while you're out on the mountain. And so really trying to drive all of our guests to downloading the app uh, and utilizing the app for the most up-to-date information. You know, it'll have restaurant information as well as lift times. But if you still desire a trail map, we do print a limited number and they sit in our ticket offices and so you, you can go ask our ticket office to be able to, to get one of our new trail maps for this season.
1: And those will be available at all ticket offices or are there certain ones on the mountain? Like, should you go to River Run as opposed to, to maybe over to toward Peru? Uh, mountain House and River Run will both have the trail maps. All right, so this is your second new lift in three seasons or really just two years at Keystone. You put in the Peru Express in 2021. I'm not sure, I I realize that was the year you started as general manager. And so I'm not sure how involved you were in that construction process, but just talk a little bit about the difference between putting in a new lift on an existing line where Peru was an upgrade from a high-speed quad to putting in a lift on an all new line with Bourbon Express where there hadn't been anything before. Yeah, it's almost a completely different process.
0: I would say it's the same lift because it is, but it's easier to, to take down an existing lift utilize some of the same uh, tower foundations uh, and then be able to build a lift right where one already existed. And Mm -hmm. I think the difference between Bergman and Peru is Bergman puts us up into high alpine. Uh, And so putting a lift in high alpine takes extra work, extra care to be good stewards to the land that we're operating on. And so we had to plan a little bit more and, and work harder at doing the Bergman chairlift. A lot of the materials get flown in as opposed to driven uh, like Peru. Uh, And so just, yeah, different, different dynamic, a little harder than Peru, for sure.
1: It has been an extra challenging project. This expansion was in fact supposed to open for the 2022 to 23 ski season. What happened, Chris? Yeah, so in the summer
0: of 2022, uh, as the first phase of the project construction was underway, you know, the construction team approached the high alpine tundra as a temporary construction route instead of a minimal construction route. So that really paused portions of the project. You know, we immediately uh, partnered with the U.S. Forest Service to take quick and thorough remedy actions, uh, which included a comprehensive restoration plan.
1: Yeah, the Forest Service, a Forest Service representative speaking to the press, called that mitigation plan, quote, the best mitigation plan, and quote, that it had ever seen Take us through that plan, Chris, I, I guess is to the extent that you can lay out what the damage was and then what was your plan to fix it and how did you go about implementing that plan?
0: Yeah, so we had a temporary construction route where it should have been minimal. And so when that happened, you know, we
1: started working. I guess, Chris, I'm sorry to interrupt you. So, so what's, what's the difference between those things, like a minimal road and a temporary construction road? What, what's from, a, from an engineering or, a, or an impact point of view, what's the difference between those two things?
0: Yeah, so minimal is really just tracks or tire routes over the tundra mm-hmm. and temporary would be a, a little bit of grading, um mm-hmm. a little bit of actual like dirt work to level out where the road was supposed to be. And so with that, we needed to come in and actually put the tundra and soil back the way it was before we did any of that kind of temporary construction work. And so mm-hmm. that's the plan we worked on. That's the plan that the Forest Service said was the best mitigation plan that they'd ever seen. Mm -hmm. Um, And our team worked uh, tirelessly last summer to really put all of that back to bed. We actually started seeing new growth in that high alpine vegetation before the end of the summer last year. Mm -hmm. This summer, it continues to show growth in that area that, that we did the restoration plan last year. Uh, and so, yeah, we worked really hard to to put it back so that there wouldn't be a long lasting impact on that area.
1: Does Vail Resorts have folks internally who are experts in that and helped you come up with that plan? Did you hire an external agency? What can you tell us about that process of coming up with that plan? We don't have experts that work uh, internally on it. We, we obviously have some very
0: skilled folks, but we contracted with you know an external group that helped us come up with it that works on these plans in conjunction with the Forest Service at other locations. But we did have a third party help us create that plan that we were then able to execute. And we worked with them. So it wasn't, you know, they came up with it. We went back and forth on some of it. Uh, and got it to a place where we could present it to the Forest Service.
1: So I I appreciate that you're not a scientist here, Chris, but what can you tell us about high-altitude vegetation and the particular challenges of restoring that as compared to if you're a few thousand more feet down?
0: You know, weather plays an impact in the high alpine. Uh, There's no trees to protect a lot of the vegetation, and so there's just wind and sun. Um, and then, you know, rain, snow, all of that. And so with the high alpine compared to the lower, any sort of impact that takes place can take longer to either go back to its natural state. Uh, and then the other thing in the high alpine is there's not a lot of actual soil below the high alpine tundra. It's really thin. And then usually you get into some some bedrock. Uh, and so it's harder, whereas when you're down in the tree line, usually have, you know, a few more inches of actual like topsoil before you get into kind of subsoil and then some bedrock. And so I think those are a couple of the differences. And so it just makes it harder to do anything up in the high alpine because there's not a lot of regular soil for any of that vegetation to really thrive in.
1: So obviously when something like this happens, it has to be incredibly disappointing for you and for the team and for Vale and, and everyone else. Vale operates all the time with high altitude construction. When something like this happens, talk about the process internally and how you, like, to give a, a an analogy, if there's an airplane crash, they figure out exactly what happened. And there's all these government agencies that go through and make sure that they identify that flaw in the, in the process and that it doesn't happen again. And we've been very successful with that and not had a plane crash in a number of years. Obviously, lower stakes here, but nonetheless, it's a mistake that you don't want to repeat. So talk about the process internally of saying... Okay, owning the mistake, we made this mistake, and how do we make sure that we don't do it again?
0: Well, for myself
1: and, you know, the team that was involved,
0: this was a valuable learning opportunity that reinforced Mm -hmm. for us the importance of leadership, accountability, and collaboration. So this experience really underscores the importance of our close partnership with the U.S. Forest Service and we've worked closely with them every step of the way um, as we resume the project and then, you know, into this summer. And so we we spent most of the winter last year working with the Forest Service on the implementation plan for this summer. Uh, so there wasn't any, what do we do here? Or what what's the next step? Or, hey, we didn't think about that. Obviously, there's going to be some in the moment, you know, fits uh, that you didn't think about before. But working all winter to make sure that we were in a good spot this year to make the project successful. But it, it starts with me. Right. Mm-hmm. And as the leader of the resort, it's it's my um, leadership uh, that really needs to ensure that the project is successful. Uh, and so we look back and, and look at how we can ensure that uh, we're driving this project while being good stewards and ensuring that, you know, what happened last summer doesn't happen again. Because we take our roles as stewards with the, the National Forest very serious. Mm-hmm. And we're committed to protecting the environment, ensuring that future generations have the same opportunity to recreate um, in this beautiful place uh, that we live,
1: work, and play. You know, Chris, we all make mistakes and it stinks when they happen. I mean, from a personal point of view, how did you deal with this and move through it where, like you said, you have to own the mistake because you're at the top and and you have all this responsibility, but you have to keep moving. You have a job to do. So, So how did you... Deal with that, and what ultimately helped you push through?
0: Yeah, so I had to look in the mirror, and I had to look at my own leadership, and I had to look at where I misstepped, so that there was this incident that took place, and that was tough, you know, to have this failure, know that um, as leader resort, it's, it's my fault, um, mm-hmm. and we we immediately had to do work to to work on the restoration plan. And, you know, make things right where we had misstepped. And so I I couldn't sit around and dwell on the mistake uh, for too long because I had to ensure that, you know, the team and I were leading. You know, I I quickly understood where I could make changes and uh, we worked on the restoration project and, and, you know, helped lead the team to deliver on that. And
1: so far this summer, everything has been going smooth. So how much are you looking forward to the grand opening of that lift? I mean, how good is that going to feel after this long process? It's going to feel great.
0: Um, it's going to be a, a massive party. We can't wait to get this terrain open to our guests and our pass holders. And so, yeah, it's going to feel really good for me, for the whole team that's been involved. You know, we're going to we're going to have a good celebration.
1: So for the folks who may be mourning the loss of Bergman as hike in terrain, as you mentioned, there's still quite a bit of hike-in terrain at the top of Keystone. You have Independence Bowl. You have North Bowl and South Bowl above Outback. So those bowls, both of them on the 2009 master plan, had potential lifts, a fixed grip lift that would go up Independence Bowl, and a surface lift off the top of the Outback Express off North and South. And again, 2009 was a long time ago. What's your current thinking around potential lifts into either of those high Alpine bowls?
0: Yeah, you know, 2009 is a long time ago, but those upgrades are definitely, you know, potential investments and they're on uh, my radar to look at. But, you know, as we think about the master plan, it was created 15 years ago. A lot has changed since 2009 in the terms of how our guests navigate the mountain and the type of experience they're looking for. And so in the coming year, we're really going to see how Bergman shapes um, the guest experience and how that then will drive updating our master plan. And so while those ideas are certainly up for consideration, you know, we're going to look. We're going to look at how the guests behave with Bergman and uh, see if a fixed grip in Indy or a surface lift in North and South really makes sense for what the guests are looking to do while they're at Keystone.
1: So I do want to get into that master plan a little bit more in a minute here, Chris, but I want to linger on something you, you just said, which is you know, you're know, you the leader of the resort. And as I mentioned in the intro, you started out checking tickets and kind of worked your way up through Vail Resort. So I want to go through your career real quick, because I know I have a lot of folks who listen to this podcast who are in entry-level positions in skiing, or even pre that, they want to get into skiing and they don't really know how. So I want to get into your story a little bit here, starting with, where did you grow up? Or, or were you a skier? Did you always want to work in skiing? I wasn't. Uh,
0: so I grew up in Oklahoma uh where we have zero ski ski (laughs) resorts or ski mountains and yeah i didn't i I would say i didn't think about it spent a lot of time at the lake water skiing wakeboarding you know I, i skateboarded as a young kid uh and then when i was in high school one of my buddies over christmas break was coming out to summit county and said, hey, do you want to you go? So me and another friend jumped in his Jeep and mm-hmm. we drove out here. We took time skiing uh, at Keystone and over at Breck. I was mm-hmm. actually snowboarding, not skiing. Mm-hmm. And that was the first time I had ever done it. And so that would have been 1999. Okay. And I spent three days on the green run yard sailing, falling, (laughs) um, frustrated, uh, definitely should have taken a lesson, but that's what really, you know, sparked my passion and Mm -hmm. holy smokes, the, the mountains, like, you know, coming through the tunnel and seeing the mountains and then getting on the hill for me, it was life-changing.
1: So you had that first experience and you didn't start at Keystone for a few years after that. So take us into the time in between. How did you decide, okay, this is what I want to do. And then how did you end up working at Keystone?
0: Yeah. So a year later, we took another another trip out with a few more friends. Uh, again, came to Summit County, Keystone, Breckenridge. Uh, that day or that trip, we did take one day over at Vail and um, snowboarded at Vail. And that was it. Came back and really thought about how can I get a job in the ski industry? And so at the time I was working in telecommunications. I was programming phone switches in a closet for an insurance company. And then at night I was working at a major retailer um, just so I could talk to people because mm-hmm. I, I love socializing, love hearing people's stories. And so then one day there was an ad in our local newspaper that had a snowboarder jumping off a cliff okay. and it said, want to get paid to play. And, uh, I went down to the hiring event straight after work. Um, I was wearing a tie, went in and, and applied for a lift operator job. And I can remember the, uh, the person interviewing that, that looked at me and said, you're wearing a tie and you're applying to be a lift operator. <laughs> Uh, you're hired. Um, <laughs> and that amazing. was it. That's that's So that was, you know, summertime. Mm-hmm. I wasn't scheduled to start until the winter season. I think it was right after Thanksgiving. Uh, and so I remember Thanksgiving day, finishing with my family and then getting in the car and driving through the night out here to Keystone and started my career in the ski industry. And at the time, while I wanted to see how I could make it a career, it was was a seasonal job for me.
1: So what kept you in it? And was there a moment where you said, okay, this, because it's one thing to do it on a whim, it's another thing to stick around, right? So what made you stick around? Was there an inciting incident? There was, there's actually a few, but I mean, the moment that I
0: called my dad and said, I'm never coming home, like I'm never (laughs) going to move back to Oklahoma. uh, It was about two weeks on the job. I was working the top of A51 chairlift and I'd gone up there in the morning on a snowmobile um, with a lift maintenance worker was doing startup on the chairlift and while i was sitting in the lift hut waiting for the mountain to open the sun started coming up and i remember the sky turning pink the whole sky just turned this radiant pink and i my my jaw dropped i was like why would i want to go anywhere else besides here this is exactly where i want to be and so that day i called my my dad and said i'm never i'm never coming home i'm going to figure out how i can make a career out of this And so then I started researching it at our company. We have a a lot of leadership development classes. And so it wasn't probably a few weeks later, I got enrolled in one of our leadership development classes that was after work for kind of six weeks where I got to hear from different leaders at the resort and their kind of career path. And that was it, I was hooked. And so went through all of those, got promoted into a lead role for the lift operations ticket scanning department, you know, that, that was it from there. The other piece that really helped me solidify that this is what I want to do. And this is what I want to make a career out of was every person that I got to interact with from employees to guests were having fun and no one was coming to the resort to ski because they felt like they had to They came <laughs> because they wanted the experience. They wanted to have fun. And so for me, I got to interact with people from all over the globe that were here to have fun and, and, that's what I wanted to do. And so I wanted to be surrounded by people that also wanted to have fun. And it just, yeah, for me, it fit.
1: So you found a place you love. You found a thing that you love doing. I mean, it's easy to love Colorado, right? It's another thing to love skiing in Michigan, which, by the way, is where I grew up. So I'm speaking from a place of knowledge here. So after a dozen years at Colorado, you work your way up. This opportunity comes up to run Brighton in Michigan, Mount Brighton in Michigan. Talk about that opportunity and what appealed to you about it yeah um
0: I'd never been to Michigan mm-hmm. before before landing the GM of Mount Brighton Roll. I've obviously during the process looked at some pictures online. But for me, what's unique, I think, within our company is because we have forty resorts, there's a lot of opportunity. And so I was able to, yeah, raise my hand and say, I would love to run a resort because my ultimate goal, two weeks into when I made the decision that I want to make a career out of this, I wanted to land the role that I currently have. And so for me, dream come true, full circle. But I knew that I wasn't going to be able to do that just staying at Keystone and trying to work my way up at Keystone. And so Mount Brighton opened up. I was able to uh, go out to Mount Brighton where I got to learn the position. I got to grow as a leader. I could really understand my leadership values and, and how I can influence the other employees at the resort. And the folks at Mount Brighton are passionate. They love the skiing culture, and so it was a different kind of guest experience and employee experience. Yes, it's a it's a much smaller hill, but the folks there are extremely passionate, uh, and so that was cool to be a, a part of and to share that passion. Um, you know, they're there every day, six seven days a week, riding the chairlift, riding the rope tow. Um, you know, in the evenings with the night ski.
1: Uh, and so it was it was a really, really cool experience. Yeah. For the folks who are not familiar with Mount Brighton, it was it's a little bump. It was built with landfill from Interstate 96 and uh, they built up a kind of an artificial 200 vertical foot hill. It's right there by about five million people. And it's incredibly busy at all times. I, I mean, what was your thought process when you first so, I mean, you're from Oklahoma, right? So so you didn't grow up around the mountains, but when you saw this little hill, what was your first thought? And then talk about that process of coming to appreciate that passion of Midwestern skiing. Uh, I'll I'll share
0: when we... So my wife and I drove out there. My, my dad's from Michigan. Uh, and so I had a bit of family ties in Michigan. Nice. He grew up uh, in Dearborn, Michigan, just down the nice. road. But I remember we drove to Mount Brighton and we drove into the parking lot when we got there. And uh, again, my first time seeing the resort... And my wife in the car said, I think we made a mistake <laughs> Um, be- because, right? Like the beginner hills at our Colorado resorts are, right. are more vertical feet, bigger. And I was like, no, no, this is where I need to be. Like, this is awesome. This is going to okay. be a great experience. And so, you know, starting there, working with that team, seeing the the passion and it's it's not easy in the Midwest, you know, the weather fluctuates. The seasons are very short. You may have four weeks of, of really good cold temperatures, and then all of a sudden it rains for two days uh, right. in January and, and just destroys your snow surface, and then you're having to rebuild the hill. And so for me, it was just a lot of learning, right? Mm-hmm. I was able to be very involved at a much smaller scale, and so I got to put my hands in a lot of different pots and and work alongside a lot of the employees at Mount Brighton and, and just see the passion, you know? I, most of the folks that work at these smaller resorts in the Midwest, you know, they've been there 30 years, 30, 40 years. Um, and, and it's it's cool to hear their stories and hear the evolution of the resorts. And then to hear how excited they are that, you know, Vail is, has come in and purchased them and made capital and investments into the resort. And then obviously the, the guests love that, right? The guests are ecstatic about the lift upgrades or the snowmaking upgrades or the upgrades to the lodges and the experience that we're able to provide for them.
1: So after Brighton, you went on to work at Afton and Afton and Brighton were two of, along with Wilmot, Wisconsin, two of the first resorts that Vail really surprised everyone with by buying these small city adjacent Midwestern ski areas with the notion that, okay, these folks from Milwaukee and Chicago and Minneapolis and Detroit, they will come and you'll buy the pass to ski our little mountain and get some turns in after work. And then they'll take vacations out to Vail and Beaver Creek and Keystone and all these other places. So we talk a lot about the dynamic from the receiving end and the big resorts, but talk about that on the ground as a leader of a small resort. How much difference did that make to the pass holders there? How excited were they to be part of the Vail family and know that, okay, yeah, we have this 200 foot bump in Brighton, Michigan, but this also gives us a ticket to all these amazing places in Colorado and beyond.
0: Yeah. Yeah obviously amazing value for the epic pass holder right and and now we've got some some small resorts that are right there in their backyard that they love going to and then they they're now part of a bigger company that the pass allows them to come experience resorts in the east coast the the Colorado Rockies the west coast um or even over in Australia and and now Europe that dynamic and change they were excited they were stoked and so one thing i remember you know is Every one of the, uh, you know, with Afton and, and Wilmot and Brighton, we kind of had this Where Epic Begins slogan. And so each one of those resorts had a wall of all of our destination resorts mm-hmm. um, pictured on it. So as you were dining or walking from, you know, one restaurant through to the restrooms or, you know, through the buildings, you would see all these other resorts. And, and a lot of them had trail maps from the other resorts. And so just stoke the passion for those guests there to go, gosh, we got to go to a larger resort. As I think about my story, my first experience was here in Summit County, 2,000 vertical feet, not 200. And that's a bit intimidating. And I spent three days yard sailing and falling and frustrated uh, before I really got the hang of snowboarding. Whereas you can create the passion at these, these smaller urban style resorts outside of a major metropolitan area, get a lot of reps and runs in, and then have the chance to come to one of our, you know, larger Colorado resorts or California resorts and and have a great experience. I can remember talking to kids that were like, Mm -hmm. oh, I went down, I went down this run, you know, like your steepest run at one of these smaller resorts. And it's about the size of a bunny hill here, but they're so passionate about like, oh, I did that blue. Like, this is awesome. Like super proud of themselves for being able to, to make it down that run. And for me, that was just really, really exciting to see and to be a part of.
1: Yeah, the the Midwest ski culture is just amazing, and anyone who hasn't should try to ski at least once in the Midwest just so that you can see how much people love it, even when you take away all the big stuff. Nonetheless, I'm sure you were really fired up to after five years in the Midwest to get that call back to Keystone. How did that opportunity come up and how excited were you to be able to come back and leave the resort? And I think the more important question is, how happy was your wife to get back to the Rockies?
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: uh, she was thrilled, right? Uh, she wanted to be
0: back here, friends, um, obviously just the culture here, the seasons, like everything. And so she was really excited. I was excited to get back as well. But yeah, the opportunity came up at the time the COO, Breck John Bueller, had announced his retirement. Uh, And then they had announced Jody at the time was the COO of Keystone, was transitioning over to Breck. And so Keystone's role opened up. And so as soon as I found out, I put my name in the hat, was very hopeful because this was my dream job. This is what I had aspired. This is why I went out to the Midwest, like was to try to come back into this role. And gosh, I feel extremely lucky to do what I love at a place that I am madly in love with, I have a deep passion for. And so every day I come to work, I pinch myself, feel like it's still a dream. And it's I'm going into my third winter season back in this role.
1: So it really is an amazing place. And I made this point when I hosted Jody Church on the podcast, who's, as you mentioned, now the leader of Breckenridge, is that Keystone's actually bigger than Breck. And that's kind of funny because Breck is so busy, often the busiest ski area In America. Elsewhere in the Vale portfolio, you have Vale Mountain right down the road, obviously biggest skier in Colorado. That's the flagship. Beaver Creek has this whole aura of it where it's just this really high-end place. I feel like Keystone doesn't get the credit it deserves. I think there's some really good skiing there, especially off Outback. I really, really enjoy it every time I go there. From your point of view, Chris, what makes Keystone special? What makes it stand out? Because you are in a really tough neighborhood to stand out. Yeah, there's a few things. So The terrain diversity, you mentioned, right?
0: Different terrain off of the outback, but I think the diversity that we offer is pretty exceptional. The 3,149 acres that we offer to ski on makes us one of the biggest resorts in Colorado. We've focused really hard on our progression and our, our learning at Keystone. And so offering the progression and the learning has been a big focus for us. We've got the three peaks. We've got the five bowls here at Keystone. The views off of North Peak are great. There's a ton of bump runs off of North Peak. We've got some steeps uh, and groomers off of North Peak. Outback, right? Our furthest peak you spoke about. Got some gladed, got some groomers, got some bump runs. Also got North and, and South Pole that you can hike to off of the top of Outback. And then for our, our lifetime visitors that want to take advantage of the more advanced terrain, there's a bunch of local secret spots Uh, I don't want to mention them on here because I want to the (laughs) secrets away, but we have a ton of that. And so that's one thing, this, the diverse terrain, there's also a piece of like kind of a hallmark experience for us that I think about at the resort. And so for me, it's how you're going to explore the resort, but Mm -hmm. we do a lot of programming around creating an experience for everybody. And so the mountaintop snow fort, you know, world's largest mountaintop snow fort, Mm -hmm. uh, is, is an unbelievable experience and something that you just got to go check out. If you want to be a kid again and run through the tunnels and, you know, hit the slides, great, but something you have to check out. Then the mountaintop tubing hill, you know, that tubing Mm -hmm. hill sits at 11,600 feet. So being able to see the views, have fun going down the tubing hill is amazing experience. And then we've got one of the largest maintained outdoor ice rinks on our Keystone Lake Mm -hmm. uh, that we also put hockey boards on and host some hockey events. But then you can Finish the whole day off doing a horse-drawn sleigh ride, uh, where you can get out on, a, on an actual sleigh ride at the back ranch at Keystone, where there's no electricity, no running water, and really have like a homestead experience on, a, on an amazing meal. And so for me, that's like the hallmark experience, because there's so much more than just skiing and snowboarding. And then I think the last is the accessibility, right? Mm-hmm. We're really close to Denver, really close to DIA. And so it's not hard to be able to get up here We offer, obviously, free parking at our base areas, Mm. uh, as well as a very large family parking with, you know, we've got some red wagons, so you can throw your kid's ski gear and and use the wagon to get through the village, and so you're not trying to carry everything. Also, throw your little kid in the wagon and pull your kid through, (laughs) so they're not clunking around in their ski boots, frustrated before you even get to the chairlift, Uh, and then again, back to the, the learning terrain, and then we've obviously got a lot of lodging options here, and so... For me, those are kind of the three things that really stand out about Keystone and that, in my eyes, make it very special. You know, last thing would be the staff that works here. The staff is passionate. Staff cares. We've got a lot of tenure in our employees that work at Keystone, and they love to share their experiences, their stories with our guests. And so that's part of the reason that I love coming to work every day.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a really, really well-rounded resort, and it has a little bit of everything. And that frontside terrain is, in my opinion, some of the best sustained intermediate terrain in Colorado and probably anywhere in the West. So, you know, the mountain's in really good shape. It's always evolving, as we discussed earlier, making this big expansion up into Bergman. You just put a new lift in uh, two years ago over at Peru. But looking long-term here, Chris, as you survey the mountain, as you, as you settle into your uh, general manager position there what's your wish list for that lift fleet long term? It's in good shape, but there's there's always more you could do. So what areas are you focused on as you think about how to evolve Keystone? Yeah, I think, you know, first that comes to
0: mind would be our A51 chairlift, you know, upgrading that to a detachable, mm-hmm. you know, way back is a fixed grip. And so at some point, we'll look at that chairlift. Uh, and then Ranger, you know, our beginner lift that's at the top of the mountain mm-hmm. um, is another lift that comes to mind as, you know, something that, would like to to try to upgrade you know i think as we look down the road summit express is probably something that would be on our radar to to upgrade to a six-person
1: chairlift those are the the forefront of my mind as we think about capital investments in the future so if you look at a51 your neighbors at breckenridge are upgrading five chair this year and that's their park chair and they also had a fixed grip double there, which is what you have at A51. How closely are you watching the results on five chair over at Breck to decide what sort of lift to go to A51? And do you think that that will be a detach? I think it'll be a detach. I wouldn't say that we're looking really closely at Breck. I mean, the five chair is
0: obviously a base area chair for them. So it's getting folks out of the base area up onto the mountain, whereas A51 is this pod of really great learning terrain that's on the mountain. And so, Definitely looking at it being a detachable lift for the future, and I, I can't say that Chair Five would play too big of a role in any of that.
1: So, as you look at the two thousand nine master plan, the big lift that was on that one was a new Argentine detachable quad that would have loaded near Peru and landed at the junction of Schoolmarm and Ski Daddle. When you upgraded Peru, there so it was the so for the listeners there was the Peru high speed quad, and then right next to it. Was an Argentine double that would drop you right at the foot of Montezuma. That double chair is gone. What is your long term thinking around Argentine? Is that still a thought that you would maybe have that Argentine lift in there or is Argentine done?
0: Yeah, I think, you know, with the upgrade of Peru in 2021, we feel really good about the impacts this has made to the circulation of our guests out of the Mountain House base area. And so, Argentine, I would say is done, not something that we're considering replacing or putting, you know, something in its place.
1: What about the ski tip lift? This is one that would have come up out of the ski tip lodge and dumped off at Santa Fe and I'm assuming that's just to help guest circulation and avoid some shuttle buses. Is that lift still under consideration? You know, there is terrain on the east side of the resort towards the ski tip lodge that falls within our boundary.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, I don't think that this area is a major priority for us right now. However, we do have other areas on the mountain that we want to focus on. Uh, and it's it's not the ski tip lift coming out of there and, and dumping people on the mountain.
1: The master plan didn't show trails back down. I mean, was this supposed to be a download lift or w- was I just missing some, some contours there where you could have skied back?
0: Yeah, it was anticipated to be a download lift for guests that we're going to download or to hop on a bus to get back over there. For us, as I think about expansion and and not really the ski tip side, but one really interesting option that we do have is our whole Westridge, mm-hmm. which is currently within our ski area boundary. Yeah. It's the terrain that's just behind North Peak, looking across from North Peak behind Lebantes. There's some really nice terrain in there that would make some great green and blue runs. Forest Service has done some really good jobs actually doing some beetle kill clear cutting for fire mitigation and healthy yeah. forest. For me, that's kind of top of radar as we think mm-hmm. about our MDP and maybe pushing that direction um, within our ski area boundary and a lift, some trails, and then something to get you
1: back to the
0: backside of Labonte's and back to Ruby and out of there.
1: That's really interesting, Chris. What is the vertical rise over there? Oh, uh, great question. I wouldn't say that I know off the top of
0: my head. It's probably close to a thousand feet, mm-hmm. uh, I would I would guess. But, you know, these are all things I would say currently on my mind wish list possibilities. But Mm -hmm. none of this takes place uh, without our close partnership and collaboration with the Forest Service Mm -hmm. and really working through what Keystone's master development plan is going to be. And
1: so something we'll present to the Forest Service and see what their opinions and thoughts are. How about the fixed grip lift that the master plan outlined going up windows? Is that still a possibility or do you want to preserve that experience for folks who want to make the hike?
0: Yeah, I think, I think right now that terrain is obviously expert only terrain, really good tree skiing. And so at this point, I'm I'm not interested in throwing in any sort of fixed grip lift or surface lift to get people out there. You know, I think you can drop in on that peak to peak trail. If you want to hike a little bit and go a little further, you can, otherwise you ride in as far and then, you know, duck into the
1: trees. So as far as Outback, and you mentioned this earlier, that is the original lift from the outback expansion in 1991 it's a high-speed quad would an upgrade there be a six-pack
0: yeah i think if we're
1: going to do an upgrade that's exactly what we do we'd upgrade
0: that exact chairlift line with a six-pack chairlift
1: is there a world in which outback express because the master planner called for outback express along the current line and upgraded along the current line then a surface lift is there a, a world in which the outback express upgrade Would go higher on the mountain, or does it need to land where it does because of wind?
0: Yeah, it would land where it does. If you go up there and you do the hike terrain, the top of Outback, there's a tiny bit of a knoll, and then it actually saddles out before you really hike up North and South Bowl. So it would finish where it currently ends if we were to do the
1: upgrade to a six pack. There was another area that was referenced on the master plan, and it was out past Independence Bowl, and it was just referred to as the K-A-T terrain, and I don't know what K-A-T was short for, if it was short for anything. What can you tell us about that terrain out there and your current thinking around whether that could be brought into the resort in the future?
0: Yeah. So you're talking North American Bowl and the K-A-T stands for CAT. So mm-hmm. the idea in the 2009 master Development Plan was that that is where the guided CAT ski tours would move is over mm-hmm. into North American Bowl. Uh, at this time, no plans or interest or thoughts on, you know, expanding the guided cat uh, program over to North American bull and utilizing any of that terrain that's currently not within
1: our boundary. So as I mentioned, Chris, this all dates all the concepts that I'm talking about here date to your 2009 master plan, which is the most recent on file with the U.S. Forest Service. Anything you can tell us about a master plan update and when we could see that?
0: Yeah, to your point, that's previous, right? 15 years old. A lot has changed mm-hmm. at Keystone since it was created. And, you know, I think we're excited to hopefully start the process and updating the master development plan this coming spring. Developing a master plan involves obviously partnership with the US Forest Service as well as other groups uh, and stakeholders. It's kind of a year-long process. Uh, mm-hmm. And so, you know, our hope is, is that we can kick that off in the spring, work through it in the year, and utilize some of the data that we're seeing from the new Bergman expansion on where our guests are going what they're accessing, how they're utilizing the mountain to drive some of the things that uh, we want to put in the new plan. I think some things will carry over from the last plan, but you know, a lot of it'll be new um, options and ideas for our new master development plan.
1: And imagine an important piece of that master plan, Chris, is going to be snowmaking and Keystone for a variety of reasons is more reliant on snowmaking than most large Western ski areas even more so than Breckenridge or Vale or Beaver Creek, which are not far from you, but Keystone just gets less snow. Talk us through that. Why is Keystone more dependent on snowmaking than some of its peer resorts? What, what is it in particular about this mountain? I think part of it is our proximity to the lake. There's moisture that comes off the lake before it freezes over that
0: cascades precipitation further out from the lake than where Keystone sits. On average, we get about 236 inches of annual snowfall. That's kind of our last five, 10 year average. Mm-hmm. We have good years. We have some years that are a little bit of low. And so because of that, we want to make sure that we have a state-of-the-art snowmaking system that allows us to, to be able to produce snow very efficient. And so that has been some of the investments that we make every year. We're upgrading, you know, either pumps or we're upgrading some of the guns that are on the mountain to make them, you know, more aut- fully automated and replacing some of the stuff that's old, uh, as well as upgrading pipe that's in the ground so that it's you know, will last another 50 years for us. And so it is one of our big investments that we do besides chairlifts at the resort, and it helps us be able to open terrain sooner. And so, you know, obviously our investment in snowmaking is driven by the focus of providing value for our pass holders to open as early as we possibly can in, you know, October. All
1: right, last thing I want to ask you about here today, Chris, is just the Epic Pass. You know, Keystone is, I don't know, it might be the most affordable big mountain in the country. I mean, $361 was the early bird price, For the Keystone Plus Pass, that one excludes holidays. But if you want unlimited access to Keystone, you can go Summit Value. That was $546, early bird. Epic Local also includes unlimited Keystone for $676 and, of course, the full Epic Pass. As you look at Keystone and and continually assess this, we have seen season pass prices across Summit County creep up over the past several years, even with these bargain Epic and Icon Passes. That we have, A Basin's around 600 these days, and copper buy in price is around 750 for Icon Base or the Copper Mountain Season Pass. Uh, how often do you reassess volume at Keystone and, and what the appropriate pass is? And what's been the logic of keeping the pass so affordable?
0: Yeah, so this is being reassessed all the time by our pass team. And so when it comes to skiing, you know, we really try to make it easy for our guests. And so one of the reasons our guests choose Keystone and the Epic Pass product in general is because of the ease of access, you know, proximity to, to Denver. And then like you said, the the 361 price point for that Keystone Plus pass early season. So if it's that or the uh Epic Local Pass or just looking to zip up the Keystone for the weekend, you know, we have the parking, we try to make it easy. We've got the progression on the mountain. And so I would say that the Keystone plus pass is a great valuable option for our guests at $361. And you get to start in October.
1: Yeah. You know what? You also get night skiing, Chris, and this is really unique. Keystone has, I think, the largest night skiing operation in Colorado. And this is just not super common there because of a lot of things and how cold it gets at night. But talk about the importance of night skiing at Keystone as a cultural piece of the resort
0: yeah so keystone started night skiing back in 1985 and the reason behind it like what really led that opportunity for the resort was midwest almost every midwest resort has night ski uh, and so we had some folks that worked here from the midwest that really said hey we got to invest in night skiing it's going to be really popular Mm -hmm. and so we did and keystone opened in 1985 with night ski and it's continued We see a lot of our local folks that like to come after they get off work and ski obviously probably helps drive some folks from the front range to get in their car Friday instead of waiting till Saturday morning. So they can Mm -hmm. come get some runs in Friday nights during night ski and then be here for Saturday instead of having to drive up. And so we're happy to be able to offer night ski. I think our employees also enjoy it. They get off work Mm -hmm. uh, and are able to still go get some laps in instead of just working all day.
1: Yeah. It's funny that you mentioned that last time. I was out there night skiing. I was chatting with folks in the river on gondola. And I, I think as I skied that night, at least half of the people I talked to were employees from Beaver Creek or Brack or Vale who were getting some night turns in. Uh, as you as you look at the footprint, are you happy with your night skiing footprint? Are, are there any aspirations to expand that long-term or are you at the place where you like?
0: Yeah, I would say I'm at the place that we like. We have quite a bit to offer. We've got a green runs, we've got blue runs, top to bottom, both base areas. And so- at this point, I'm not looking at expanding our, our night ski operations at all. I'm mean, just kind of going with what we have. You know, we're making upgrades to the lights to make them uh high efficient, low energy lights that are a bit brighter to help with the visibility. And so we'll continue to do that.
1: All right. Last question for you here today, Chris. Morgan Bast at Steamboat wanted me to ask you about YM Magazine. I don't really know what that means. I didn't ask, but she she really wanted me to ask you about this. So what can you tell us about YM Magazine?
0: Oh, Morgan, Morgan, Morgan. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, she's she's actually referring to Cosmopolitan Magazine.
1: Okay.
0: Uh, and so back in, um, in 2004, I was one of Cosmopolitan's most eligible bachelors. Oh, me. all right. And so there's a lovely article about me and a lovely picture with my shirt unbuttoned uh, <laughs> laying on some grass. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, it was it was great. It was fun. My sister signed me up for it. Okay. Uh, they selected me to be Mr. Oklahoma, even though I was uh had, had lived in done a season in Colorado and decided mm-hmm. that I was going to make this my home. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was great. Got to go to New York um, and, and be on TV. Uh, I'm, I'm grateful for Morgan bringing that up to you. Uh, I feel like I can (laughs) never live that one down every year. It comes (laughs) up when new employees start onboarding, they Google me that pops up. Uh, and then, uh, you know, they, they want to joke about it, which is great, but it was awesome. It was a really cool experience. Uh, and, and I'm grateful for my sister
1: for nominating
0: me. Did that
1: have anything to do with meeting your wife?
0: Uh, it did not uh, it did not uh, have anything to do with my wife. I met my wife at the resort. She didn't know that I had uh, at once was Mr. Oklahoma most eligible bachelor, but yeah, it was it was funny. That would have been funny if it was how I met my wife.
1: Things we do for love, man. All right. well, listen, Chris, with that, I will let you go. I cannot thank you enough for your time today. I am really excited about everything that's going on at Keystone. I think this new Bergman terrain is gonna be really, really fun and really add a really cool dimension. Of high alpine skiing to the resort. So I'm looking forward to hopefully getting out there and testing that out for myself this year. Best of luck between now and then getting that thing online. I appreciate you and thank you very much. Yeah,
0: thanks so much, Stuart. And uh, yeah, we look forward to bringing that terrain online mid December, weather dependent. And um, yeah, come out and experience some really cool uh, terrain. <laughs>
1: That's Chris Sorensen, Vice President and General Manager of Keystone, Colorado. Really excellent job, Chris. I really enjoyed that. (laughs) Thanks for rolling with my surprise question at the end. And thank you all for listening. I've got a bunch more Bell Resorts podcasts on the schedule over the coming months, including conversations with the leaders of North Star, Park City, and Aditash. And I am in discussions for more in the future. A huge thank you to everyone at Vail Resorts who helps to coordinate these conversations. I know you get a ton of media requests, and I do greatly appreciate you making time for the storm, and so do my listeners. Remember, the very best way to get these episodes the moment they are live is to visit StormSkiing.com and subscribe to the Skiing newsletter. New pods appear in your email box several hours before syncing with the podcast services, including Apple and Spotify. There are free and paid tiers of the newsletter, and paid subscribers do receive podcasts seven days before everyone else. You can also follow The Storm on Twitter and Instagram at Storm Ski Journal. Until next time, stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester, and I'll talk to you again very soon. The
0: Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.